everything ready from time. You're, you're the one we're waiting for, Rob. Amen. Welcome, everyone. Um, <clears throat> we are in the process of a series um, on the church, and I had the book a minute ago, but um, I've misplaced it. Oh, they're not for me, cuz. They're for everybody. Yeah, if you could hand them out, that would be great. Um, <clears throat> so we are um, utilizing a book by a brother called Chris Green, and typically, I'd say 90% of the time, um, we make a habit of walking through the scriptures verse by verse. So we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll walk through that book. And over the years, we've probably been through 15, 20, maybe 25 books of the Bible. Um, I won't take time to try and remember all of the books that we've talked through, but we've done that line upon line, verse by verse. Um, at the beginning of this year, we've started a, a series <clears throat> that's topical. So we're not literally going through a book verse by verse, but we're taking a topic of the church and we're going to be looking at different portions of the Bible. And I think we're still going to be expositing the text to some degree. Um, but hopefully that makes sense. And it feels a little bit like, although we are 17, 18 years down the road, for us as a church, it feels like we're having a bit of a reset. I've said this to a number of people, and I think we've all been seeing it and sensing it. And um, it's a bit like, you know when you reboot your computer, and it's a bit, and it's a bit not like rebooting your computer in that, when you reboot your computers because it ain't really working properly and you reboot it and you restart it and, okay, it goes back to normal the way you're used to having it. All right, now I can open this program and so on. We feel like we've tried to or we've been through a reset of the church, but it ain't gone back to what it, what it used to be. We have confronted with a new operating system to some degree. Illustrations break down after a while, don't they? <laughs> I'm trying to say, isn't it? So I'm saying that we're going definitely for a reset. And we're just saying, okay, cool. Let's get back to basics. Let's remind ourselves of the things that are fundamental when it comes to the church. And so here we are. And <clears throat> today's session, today's topic is the third in the series. And it's called Resident Aliens. Resident Aliens. Now, we'll come back to the title in a moment. Last week and the week before, Pastor Rich introduced our series talking about the life of the church, first of all, and how the early believers gave themselves to four things. Do you remember what those four things were? Prayer was one. I, you're not going to give me in, in, in proper order, but it's all right. Prayer, breaking of bread. All right. I'm putting it on you, isn't it? It's all right. Prayer, breaking of bread. Fellowship. And giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine or teaching. Those four things are vital to the lifeblood of any healthy church. <clears throat> and then last, that was, that was the first week, right? Hallmarks of a healthy church. Last Sunday, he talked about another marker, which is compassion. And how it related to our giving. Kind of primarily in terms of our treasure, but also our time and our talent. How are we giving? And do we do it with a heart of compassion or for other probably unhelpful reasons? <clears throat> <clears throat> 
today we're going to look at another identifier that marks the church and makes the church the church. The church's holiness or the church's set-apartedness or the church's distinctiveness. And then we're going to touch a little bit on baptism, um, which is also a vital indicator um, of, of that which makes us different Actually, it's one of the two ordinances you might be aware of in the, in the New Testament. Um, baptism is one. What is the other one? <coughs> we just mentioned it when we talked about the four important elements. Breaking of bread, communion. <coughs> two ordinances. So we'll come back to baptism. Now, when it comes to the biblical, faithful, historical New Testament church that Jesus instituted, there's a need for clarity. There's a whole heap of churches. But are they all a faithful representation of what Jesus instituted? Um, somebody might stop you and say to you, oh, Leo, brother, can you tell me where St. Mark's church is? And he'd be like, yeah, man. I'm especially lucky he's a brother who knows his directions. He'd be like, yeah, man, just go down the road, turn left, this on the right. How many of you know that's not the church? It might be a nice building, but that's not the church by biblical definition. I did this recently at LCM. Um, you ever heard this children's rhyme? <coughs> it goes, here is a church and here is a steeple. Open the doors and... See, you're wrong again. You got part of it, right? You got part... All right, you see, brother? See, really, the, the, the real... Um, the truth... The true way to illustrate that is... Here is a building... Here is a building, here is a steeple. Open the doors, and here is the church, the people, i.e., the people are not the building. The church, I should say, is not the building. The church is the people. Now, the question that we want to answer today is, who is the church, or part of the question that we're answering today, who is the church, and what is its purpose? Do you think that's a fair question? Do you think that's a helpful question? Especially if you're a new Christian, right? You'd be like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is the church? What is its purpose? Clarify it for me, Rob. Um, like I said, it might help you to get a copy of Chris Green's book. Um, <clears throat> but more importantly, his book is based on the Bible. Have a look at the text with me. Um, thank you for helping me, guys. And you can see on your handout that I've given you the two portions of text that we're going to be using. I've given you all my points, and hopefully it's going to make things a little bit more clear. So, um, if you, if, if, if it's, it's, it's nine font. So, if you're all like me, best put on your glasses. No shame. You know what I mean? No, no, no need to feel embarrassed. Put on your glasses. If not, I don't know if this is any better, um, but I would rather I could have the text that I had, please. Forgive me. Only because um, I say it now because later on I've got, got some highlights that I want to highlight. So um, 1, Peter 9, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 12. The first section is taken from the ESV. The next one is taken from the NKJV for a reason. Now, 1 Peter 2 says, but you are a chosen race. We want to know what the church is, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and notice, glorify God on the day of visitation. Our second text um, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22, and that says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made, al made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Let me pray. Father, um, your word is incredible. Um, it's amazing. It's wonderful, but sometimes it can be a little bit complicated. Lord, would you help us as we think through um, the topics at hand and the text? And Lord, would you open the eyes of our understanding? Like the, the men on the road to Emmaus, Lord. It was only when Jesus opened their understanding, unzipped their minds, were they able to comprehend the scriptures. And Lord, um, we don't take it for granted, Lord, that this is about clever words and fine speaking and fine sounding arguments, Lord. It's about your spirit opening up our eyes and our hearts to your word and then giving us the grace to respond to it. So we commit ourselves to you with that in mind, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've got two points, as you can see, and I've got a sub point. I wonder if we can take a little bit of the bass, the bottom of my mind. I mean, I've got a squeaky voice. Maybe the bass is a good thing. I don't know. Um, I've got two points and a sub point. The first point is we are God's people for what? You've got a handout, so you've got no, you, you might not see the screen, but you've got a handout to hope for. All right, so we're God's people for God's glory, right? And the second point is we are saved. Why? Because Christ suffered and he set us apart by baptism, as we're going to see in a minute. I'm giving bear trouble up here tonight. Is it me or is it really hot in here? <laughs> is it me? It's me. Why? Maybe. Should I leave now? I don't, it's like, boy, sorry, giving everybody bad trouble. Now, this is a letter. We call it a book, but it's really a letter. Who's it written by? So Peter, in this, his first letter, is writing to God's people. right? So there's going to be stuff in here that's going to help us to identify who God's people are. We're going to take that for granted. He's writing to God's people, the church, and in chapter one, listen to how he starts this letter. The man says, this is written to you, God's elect, those chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, cleansed by his blood, those born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, given an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade away, preserved in heaven. No muffin, no, 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 no muffin rough can, rust can corrupt and no thief can break in and steal. He says, kept and preserved in heaven, who through faith you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, and that's just the first five verses of his letter. Move it a bit closer. Yes, sir. Is that better? A little better. Um, and that's just the first five verses. Now, <clears throat> if it's true for them, and they are God's church, it's going to be true for us if we are God's church. And ultimately, you are God's people if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Earlier in our chapter, we're in chapter 2, right? I just quoted from the beginning of chapter 1. We're in chapter 2. Earlier in chapter 2, before our verses, God's people are described as a building, right? Not a brick-built building made with hands. A building nonetheless, but not a physical, but a spiritual building, right? In verse 5, you... You also, he says, you also like living stones, so the spiritual nature, are being built into a spiritual house. So it is a house and it is a building, but it's not physical, it's spiritual. He says at the beginning of this chapter. And he says, he says with, in conjunction with Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone of this metaphorical structure, that, that he has been constructing over the past 2,000 years, according to his promise to build his church. Remember, Matthew chapter 16, verse 80. Jesus said, I will build my church. Can you hear the spiritual, the metaphorical nature of the building that's not literal but spiritual? The church is not made of literal bricks and cement. It's made of people. So we are God's people. If you could go to that next slide for me, please. We are God's people and that for his glory. Hopefully you can already begin to, to see that highlighted in our text. Look at verse 9 of First Peter 2, that first section. He says, notice, but who? You, God's people, the church, are a chosen race. Well, if we are the church, and we are God's people. We are a chosen race. Hey, now that could sound a little, that could sound a little bit racially biased, right? It could be. It could, it could sound racially biased to a particular nation, if we use race in the way that it's used commonly speaking. But if we use the word race, biblically speaking, see. This was originally written to the Jews, right? Um, the biological offspring of Abraham. Um, and even they felt that because God chose them, they were special. Now they're, now they're right, 
but they go so far in their estimation that they are special that no one else is. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we're going to see that they were special because God picked them, he selected them, he chose them in Abraham. But how many of you know God selected them in order that through them, the rest of the world would be blessed? The rest of the world would be, you see, and that is the promise. It's not just for one category of people, it's for all people. Right? Genesis chapter 17, thank you fellas. So Genesis 17, this isn't on your handout, but it's on the screen. It says, <clears throat> this, is the, this is the promise that God made to Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 4. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father, notice, of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make not just nation, but nations, plural, of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And if you know your biblical theology, you know that Gentiles as well as Jews made up the family of Abraham. Gentiles didn't start coming into the church, into the people of God at the, at, the beginning of the new, at the beginning of the New Testament. No, right throughout the whole, the whole test, the, the Old Testament. <laughs> How many of you know Moses' wife was a what? She was a, she was a Gentile. She was, she was from Cush. She was an Ethiopian. Moses' wife. How about Rahab? Not only was she a prostitute, right? Remember where she came from. She came from Jericho. And, 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 and Rahab, the prostitute, becomes the mother of who? Boy. Well done, Kian. Boaz. And Boaz eventually gets married to who? Ruth. And what is Ruth? A Moabite. <laughs> and it's crazy because Ruth, who is a Moabite, gets married to Boaz. She becomes, Ruth becomes the grandmother of King David. You read your Bible carefully. See, Gentiles, non-Jews have always had a place in God's kingdom by faith. And to get really technical, contrary to popular belief, Although there are a multitude of different nations, how many of you know, biblically, there's only one race, right? It's the human race. We all come from Adam. But if, you know, to, to get even more technical, there are actually two races, and they're not biological. They're spiritual. You're either in Adam, or you're either in Christ. And the distinction is really important. Now, <clears throat> like I said, that's getting way too technical. Getting back to our text. Another translation uses for the word race, people, which is much more helpful, right? At the beginning of verse 9, you are a chosen people. 
And the same is true for everything else on this list. It all relates to and identifies with a spiritual, not a physical group, a spiritual people. This is in part, um, our verses, a quote in 1 Peter 2. They're quotes from Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. And the description of the church in these verses, they parallel um, God's description of Israel, who were a disobedient and rebellious people. Are we any better? We too have the same sinful inclinations and tendencies, don't we? Nonetheless, we see this promise. It's a promise for Abraham, who's a sinner. It's also a promise for those who would come into relationship with God through the, biologi through the, the, the biological seed line of Abraham, ultimately David, and then the son of David, or the great-great-great-great-grandson of David, Jesus. And through him, we would be brought into the vine brought into the nation of Israel, as it were. Often people get concerned that when we talk in these terms, it sounds like we're getting rid of, we're rubbishing natural Israel, or we're rubbishing Israel historically. Um, no, we're not, we're, not, we're not rubbishing Israel. It's not that God is getting rid of and done with and finished with the promises of the Old Testament. It's that they've just been expanded making room now for the Gentiles to come in in a much more significant manner. If you think back to Acts chapter 2, who's getting saved? Who are the 3,000 that get saved in Acts chapter 2? Predominantly Jews. But then you fast forward um, even to Acts chapter 13 um, and beyond. What we see is Jews are getting saved and eventually we see Samaritans coming into the kingdom who are half Jews. And then eventually in chapter 13, you see the church in Antioch, bigger than the church in Jerusalem, full of Gentile believers. And it's from Antioch that they become a beachhead where they go into um, Western Europe and begin to share the gospel and, and, and Turkey, um, ancient um, Asia Minor, right? And, 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 and so at the beginning of the book of Acts, it's all Jews getting saved. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, the gospel's in Rome. And it's bare Gentiles are coming into the church. <clears throat> the promise of God to Abraham. John Stott talks about the fact that everything we see in the New Testament is really just a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, <clears throat> do you remember, individually it says, selected, it says chosen by God, if you like, by grace. Do you remember Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Peter continues in our passage to describe this special group of people. He says, um, they're chosen by God, right? He says, they are a royal priesthood, royal meaning children of the king, and a priesthood of all believers. You know, there are some churches <clears throat> that probably use terms that are not helpful for us as we're trying to identify who the church is. Because you go into some churches and if you want to pray to God, you're not encouraged to do so with the person sitting next to you. You're not encouraged to close your eyes and 
speak to God from your heart now. You go into some churches, you're told that if you want to speak to God, you have to go via the priest. And he sits in a cubicle, and it's there you go to meet with God, right? It's not helpful. Because we don't need to go through a man to get to God, i.e. a priest. The New Testament teaches that there's only one mediator between man and God, and it's not the priest. It's our new great high priest whose name is Jesus. So you can pray to God sitting in your seat and with the person next to you. You don't need to find Pastor Bertram. Oh, no. He'd be like, you're like, I'm looking for Pastor. I've been looking for him for, for, for 15 minutes. Where is he? Oh, he's, he, he left. He's gone home. So, boy, you're going to have to wait till next week if you want to talk to God. If that were the case, the Bible teaches that we are all priests in that we can all approach the throne of God. We can all intercede on the behalf of ourselves and on the behalf of others. We can approach the king. Hebrews chapter 4, if you could put that up for me, please. It's the next slide, brother. No? Okay. Um, there should be a slide there with Hebrews 4. Thank you. So Hebrews 4 says, notice, let us, and in the context it's talking about God's people, Christians, believers, those who have put their trust in Christ. It says, let us then approach God's throne, God's throne of grace with confidence. Huh. This is the opposite to what some churches would teach. This is saying we can come to God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's me being able to go to him. That's you being able to go for you directly. But then 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1 says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. You see, that's us now. That's God's people. That's the church now praying for others, right? For kings. <laughs> Robert, even pray for the, the, for the pot, like, like, who is it now? Is it King? Charles. Thank you. Thinking Harry, William, <laughs> Elizabeth. Like, which one is which? And amen. Now I forgot what I was going to say about it. Um, I think you get where I was, where, wherever I would have gone with that, I think you get it right? Um, we can go directly to God. Um, and, and, and that's what I was going to say. We can actually pray for man like King Charles. And, and we definitely need to pray for Harry and William, a lie? You know what I mean? And, and we, can, we, can, we, 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 we can pray for our government, whether you voted for them or not. I mean, that, that's probably more reason to vote, to pray for them, right? Pray for, for all of those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. There's that word that we're dealing with. This, he says, this is good and pleases God. Why, why wouldn't we want to do something that's good and something that pleases God our Savior? Um, if we are the church. If we're the church, then this stuff will sing in our hearts and it will, it will be consistent with that which we desire to do and... If not, it will challenge us to do the things that we ought to do. 
This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants, notice, not just the Jews. He wants all people, not just white people, uh, not just black people. He wants all people, not just men, women as well. He wants all people, old and young, male and female, <laughs> rich and poor, thank you, that's the one I was looking for, rich and poor, um, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And it's our job as the priesthood of all believers to get a hold of God and to stand in the gap on the behalf of, the, of those that can't pray for themselves and also to pray for one another. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is, an, this is an, an identifying marker of the church. We are also a holy nation, right? A holy pe a people for, notice, his own possession. The word holy means to be set apart, right? It... it, it <clears throat> It means to be set apart exclusively. First of all, set apart, notice, for God. See, for his own possession. A people distinctly unique. You know, in the first century, um, the, the Roman non-Christians were astonished at the Christian community. Because their commitment to Jesus stood in stark contrast to the virtual worship of Caesar. The worship of the culture. Worship of the creature rather than the creator. Stark in contrast. And notice this is fundamental to the nature of God's people. That they are first and fundamentally for God. God's people. For God's glory. Is this, is this true of us? Does, does, does this identify us as a group? And can you see that these references are of a group, right? Not the individual, but the collective. A people, a priesthood, a nation. One large group, globally, universally, right? But smaller groups, locally, collectively, like like us here. See, this we are the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. The promise that we read earlier in Genesis 17. Someone once said that every local church <coughs> should be like a little garden of Eden. If you remember the garden of Eden, right? It had two people in it who met with God. It wasn't a lot of people, only two at the time. And there's a suggestion that the, the Garden of Eden was like a temple. Why do we say that? Because you fast forward to the time of Moses when he constructed the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle, they embroidered trees on the inside. The, the high priest wore pomegranates on his... Oh, I see what you mean. The high priest wore pomegranates around his, 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 the skirt of his garment and, and belt. And, 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 and also in the, in the tabernacle, you had the seraphim, which should remind you of the garden, because you had trees in the garden. Right? Very poignant. You had 
the seraphim or the angels standing outside the garden with the sword to prevent anyone from going back in there, right? And more importantly, you had God in the garden. And if you remember, the tabernacle was called, as well as the tabernacle, it was called a tent of meeting. Why? Because it was the place to meet with God. So can you see the, the correlation between the garden and the tabernacle? And then the tabernacle becomes the temple, which is very elaborate. You know what I mean? To the point where you go into the tabernacle, into the temple, which is the, 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 the much more solid replica of the tabernacle. You go, you go in, well, outside they perform the sacrifices. You go in, and then you had the, 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 the altar of, uh, you had on the left-hand side, you had the golden lampstand on the right-hand side. You had the table of showbread, and then in front of that, you had the altar of incense. Then you had the veil, and behind the veil, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the veil was there to prevent you from going in, because if you went in there, and you weren't the priest on the Day of Atonement with blood, you would die. Why? Because God was there. Can you see how the garden, the tabernacle, the temple now, can you see the significance? And then Jesus comes in the New Testament and in John 2, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they said, we knew that you was a madman. You know what I mean? Like somebody give this man a drugs test, right? How are you going to rebuild? The building took 40 odd years to, to build. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And in parenthesis, it says he wasn't talking about the physical building. He was talking about his body. And in that, you see Jesus now becomes, in John 2, the new temple. And you want to meet with God? Guess who you have to meet with? Jesus. In another part of John, he kills it. In another part of John, Jesus says, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And they're like, huh? What is that about? Oh, you have to go back to the Old Testament where you have Jacob's ladder. And Jacob's ladder was where the angels are ascending and descending. And what does a ladder do? A ladder connects one point to another point. Jesus comes and he says, you want to get to heaven. You want to be connected with heaven. You have to come through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the light. No man comes to the Father except he comes. All of these symbols that point to Jesus as now being the end of, you want to meet with God, Jesus is it's Jesus. He's the yes and the amen to all of that which the Old Testament pointed to. And I've gone way off piste. Um, Eden. Only two people. But God's there. It's a temple. That's at the beginning of the Bible. Fast forward to the end of the Bible. And what do we come to? You fast forward to the end of the Bible, you now come to not just a garden, but you come to a city. And it's not just two people, it's, it's, it's a, 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 a people that can't be numbered. Can you see the contrast between where it started and where it... We are, we are heading towards paradise lost but it's going to be much greater, much better an experience then than it was back then because, and, and, and you think about it, God's people are there and God is there. Meeting with his people. 
We're moving from a garden to a metropolis, ultimately a city full of God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And Jesus says that to his disciples. Do you remember when he said to him, he said to the disciples, he says, you are a, are a city. Can you imagine? It must have been mad for the disciples sometimes, you know. I mean, we, like, we say it all the time. Like, um, we are Einstein with hindsight. We look back. Jesus says, imagine Jesus saying to the disciples, you lot are a city set on a hill. Um, you want to go to that verse? Oh, is it there already? Yeah, thank you. He says, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're talking about what it means to be the church. Now, Matthew 5 is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Jesus' ministry, listen to how he concludes his commission to the same disciples. In Matthew 28. <clears throat> he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now notice it's eleven disciples minus one, right? Because Judas. And I'm hoping, like, Lord, you know, I'm hoping that that's the ratio. I mean, you hate the ratio in any sense of the matter. You don't want to see nobody lost, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's less people get lost than more people get lost. Um, I think over the past two or three years, the number of people that I've known that have walked away from the Lord, you know, it feels like, it's obviously, it's, it's like, we're living in the last days, and we're living in perilous times, and COVID never helped. And it, feel very, it felt very much, I remember, Pastor E, remember back in the day, um, Rick Godwin used to talk about a whole lot of shaking going on. You know what I'm saying? And he talked about times when God would, God would shake the church's teeth out. You know what I mean? And, and it says in Hebrews, all things that can be shaken, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And with the shaking, it feels like many have been shaken out. Um, um, yet we, 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 we hope for better things and, and yet it's the reality isn't it Judas went Judas decided to go another way um, but thankfully there are those who are like the prodigal son who end up coming back amen hallelujah verse 17 he says, he says with the 11 go to the mountain and verse 17 he says when they saw him on the mountain, they worshipped him. You don't, have any you don't need to have any problems worshipping Jesus. You know what I'm saying? But some doubted, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, now notice, I'm reading the end part of Jesus' ministry, right? And hopefully I'll get to my point. He says, some authority in heaven and a little bit of authority on earth has been given to me. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say it. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? So you know that whatever he says next, if that's true, if he's, whatever he says next, if he says jump, the church 
the disciples, Christians, Ecclesia, we ought to say how high? If he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Is that fair? Okay. Well, listen to what he does say. He says, based on who I am, let me tell you who you are, or at least what you need to do. He says, go. Go, therefore, and do what? You're getting a little bit of insight as to what it means to be the church, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. You know, a disciple makes disciples who go on to make disciples who go on to make disciples who go on to make disciples. That's how we got here. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of who? You see, God ain't racist. Don't listen to the Hebrew Israelites. I got them in the high street, my high street. And it passed the mic. Bury them in force. Don't listen to them telling you that, you know, one particular, one particular category of individual are God's people and the rest are devils. Don't listen to that. See? Make disciples of all nations. And then what do you do with them in the process of discipling them? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So you see your job as a disciple-making disciple is you, just, you, you have to teach others what you've learned. And, if, and in order for you to teach others what you've learned, you have to yourself be learning. Right? Putting it on you. <laughs> Putting it on us. Oh, Lord, help us. Teaching, this is what it means to make disciples. And it's not that heavy and hard. Because you'd be like, oh, my gosh, I've not been to Bible college. How am I going to teach people? It's all right. You just teach them what you know, in it. And we say it all the time. You might only know John 3.16. Teach them this week, meet up with whoever it is you're sharing the gospel with and teach them John 3.16. And now you've got a week to learn John 3.17. And then you can go teach them that the next week. I'm oversimplifying it, right? But you get my point. There's no one that can't not do this. And notice, more importantly, fundamentally, because Jesus is with us. Listen to what he says. He says, and behold, and he says, he says behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here he is helping us, helping us like. Do you know the grave responsibility it is to teach the Bible? And here we are trying through stammering lips and knocking knees, you know what I mean? Um, because we see that it's, it's a vital element to making disciples. This is fulfilling the Great Commission. It's what we've been commanded to do. And hopefully we're a great example to you because if we can do it, I say teach the Bible, if, if, if we can teach others what Jesus says, you know, on an ABC level or, you know what I mean, like some of the brothers and sisters that we know, thank you, um, on a much higher level, um, may God help us to find our level. But there's no excuse for not being involved in that sense. And... This whole thing about being made, which I'm emphasizing the making of a disciple. How many of you know you are a disciple and you are in the process of being made a disciple? So hopefully, some of what we've just described has happened to you. If you are a Christian, you became a disciple because someone spoke to you about Jesus. 
They taught you to observe Jesus' words. They challenged you with his commandments, and you were baptized. All because of his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And when someone discipled you, they helped you to see our next set of points. They helped you to see how Jesus suffered in order to save you. Look at us. Our second section of text in First Peter 3, right? It's printed at the bottom of your handout if you have one. Um, and I'm going to ask the guys, thank you for putting it up for me on the screen. For Christ, verse 18, First Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The just is a perfect sacrifice, see? Um, the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us who are unjust to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Hallelujah. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, this is speaking about those, those who had sinned during the time of Noah's preaching, just before the flood in Genesis 5. The fallen angels, the Nephilim, referred to in Jude as those who were bound in chains in a place called Tartarus. You say, Tartarus? I've never heard of that place before. You need to go and watch The Immortals. That's the first thing. Well, no, that's the second thing, really. The first thing is, <laughs> there are four words in the Bible for hell. What are they? Help me. Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, and our one begins with T, Tartarus. And Tartarus is only mentioned in one place. Obviously, these are the Greek words for the, the word that we, we, we translate hell. Um, Tartarus is only found one. That Greek word is only found in one place, and it's right here in 1 right, right Peter 3. Tartarus. It's, it's where these fallen angels, demons, are being kept. Verse 20 says, Who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Eight, I'm going to come back to, the, to, to that big old thing that I just opened up. <clears throat> Rescued through water. Saved through water. What does this mean? Well, if you think about, um, think about, what happened when Noah was in the ark? If you like, the ark was separated from those who were destroyed by the water. Noah and his family, yeah, after they came out the ark, then went on to live a new life in a new world. It was a type of baptism. That's not me saying that, that's Peter saying that. A little bit like, do you remember when the children of Israel were rescued by water. What am I talking about? Remember when they were in Egypt and they came out of Egypt and they thought, oh, we're free. Oh, no, we're not. Here comes Pharaoh and his armies. What is it that separated them from Pharaoh and his armies? The water. They went down into the water and they came up out of the water, in a sense, right? And then Pharaoh tried to follow them with his army and they got cut off. 
And I can say that safely and securely because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that's what Paul says. He says that God's people, Israel, were baptized in the cloud and in the sea unto Moses. It was a type of baptism. And can you see how the water cuts off? The water brings about a separation. Can you see that? And the children of Israel now, they go in to a new life in a new land. Can you see that? See, that's them back then. What about us? Verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Now notice the parenthesis or the bracketed explanation. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism, does it save us? There are some that teach baptismal regeneration, that you're not, what, you believe in Jesus, that's nice, but have you been baptized? And if you say no, they say you're not saved yet. It's only when you get baptized, we don't believe that. We don't believe that, we don't teach that. Baptism does not save us. No, but the motivation for baptism does. See, when we put our trust in Jesus who suffered for our sins, Jesus the just for us the unjust, when we express faith in Jesus, we were saved. And it resulted in us being baptized. And baptism is now an outward evidence of a genuine inward change. You think about the children of Israel, they got saved by the blood. That's what saved them from death, if you remember. That's what saves us. By trusting in the blood. We get in the house behind the blood. What are you going to trust in? Like red liquid on wooden door, on, on, on wood. Yes. And whew, the angel of death, wait, the angel of death passed over. What, by me trusting in the, wow. How many of you know when you put your trust in the red liquid that Jesus that was, that was poured out of Jesus' body on that wood, you put your trust in that blood, death has no, has, has, has no power over you. Amen. See, when we expressed our faith in Jesus, we were saved in that moment, and it resulted in us being baptized as an outward evidence of an inward change it was our faith in Christ's work on the cross that led to us being baptized. Without faith, without faith, you just go down a wet sinner and come up a wet sinner if you get baptized without faith. How many of you know there's no magical water? You might come out a little bit cleaner than when you went in physically, but not spiritually. The magic takes place beforehand. It's in the believing. Think about it. A, a Christian preaches to you and, and says you must believe in Jesus and get dunked. You must get submerged. And that in public. And it sounds like a stupid thing to do. But like I said earlier, if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, if that's true, when he says jump, you say how high. When he says get, get baptized, you say Yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. You're ready to obey. Again, look at the parenthesis in verse 21. It's not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. See, now that you recognize who Jesus is and you realize that he suffered for your sins, standard. You'd be like, when's the next scheduled Ecclesia baptism? 
Like, where can I sign up, right? You'd be like the Ethiopian official. Notice I didn't call him eunuch. Too much emasculated black man business. He's an, he's an official. He's, he's, and, and, and what does he say? He, like, my man preaches to him, and he's like, wow, what, Jesus? What, okay, boom, well, I need to get baptized. Look, there's a pool of water. What doth hinder me from being baptized, King James? Can you hear it? If it's, it's the answer of a good conscience... You see, and a bad conscience will hesitate. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, man, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, you need to get baptized now, now, you know. And they're like, oh, baptism. A bad conscience will hesitate, will refuse, deem it as non-important. Deem it as unimportant and unnecessary. Put it off to another time, maybe next year. Maybe 2024, I'll think about getting baptized. I'll come back to it. See, that's not the answer of a good conscience toward God. The repentant Jews in Acts 2 said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the cleansing of your sins. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses you from your sins, not the water. It's faith that saves us. You know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Faith in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ. See it, see it there at the end of verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Sounds like Matthew 28 all over again. Be like, rah. I mean, look at his, look at his resume. Look at his CV. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. If I were you, I'd believe and get baptized. Have you been baptized? As I look around the room. If you are a professing Christian and you've not been baptized, that's a problem. It's easily rectified, but... Either you've not been discipled well or you do not have a good conscience. What is the reason why if you haven't been baptized? Well, if it is the conscience thing, you can get your conscience clean today. You can get your conscience clean and we don't need no water. That comes later. See, if you don't, then you cannot be a part of God's people, the church. In the chapter before this, Peter says, you must be born again. See, that is who the church is. It's a collective of individuals who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And I think I've gone some way to... Also explaining not just who we are, but also why we are here. Which is highlighted in the second part of our earlier text in 1 Peter 2. Going back up to the top part to finish. Verse 9 through verse 12. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who we are. But can you also see why we are here? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, 
This is Matthew 28 that we, that we read earlier. It's the Great Commission. This is the great mission. This was the great mission of the first century disciples. This is what they were called to and nothing has changed. This is the great mission that the 21st century disciples, the church, is also called to. And we're trying to work out. He goes on, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. See, that's why you needed to be born again. Because you were outside of God's people, but now... You've been adopted. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So, look at the response. Verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, he says. Sorry, no, he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God. On the day of visitation, they'll be like, I'm so glad. Bro, Ali man, I'm so glad that I met you because I never knew what it meant to be a real Christian. I never knew what it meant to be a part of God's church, God's people. But you helped me, innit, bro? And when Jesus comes... That person will be rejoicing and they'll be looking over their shoulder at Ali saying, Fum! <laughs> See, our job is to proclaim the gospel and he does do that. Thank God. And he does it in a wonderful way too. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and live the gospel. Fighting the good fight day by day as strangers and pilgrims, as resident aliens... Remember, we're in the world, but we're not of it. Our purpose is, to, is to, to be a signpost that points people to Christ. Amen? Amen. Um, let me, do we have the band or do I just pray? Yeah, let me invite them to come up as I pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.